0: Amen. Thank you, Vicky. So, good morning. My name is Drew. I'm a pastor here at Redeemer. It's good to see you this morning. All this year, we have been talking about faith, looking at this long passage in Hebrews chapter 11. It's story after story of people in the Old Testament who, according to Hebrews, model faith for us. And in each case study, what you'll see as we've gone along, you've probably noticed there's a pattern. There's a certain crisis. There's there's some sort of crisis. But instead of shrinking back in fear at this overwhelming thing that these people come up against, the person or the people, you know, whether it's Noah, Abraham, Moses, whatever the case might be, they're able to supernaturally endure and and even push through until the crisis resolves or until they die, whichever comes first. I thought that would get a chuckle because, I mean, it says some died in faith. So for some, they pushed through, but they never, got, they never saw the resolution. Death came before the resolution, but that doesn't mean there's not resolution. Because we know the resurrection comes after death. Now this morning we come to the story of the Red Sea crossing. And I need to set up the passage of scripture we're going to read uh, in just a minute. And so let me say, if, if you're not familiar with the story, God's people had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. He brought them out of that slavery and led them toward the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as they came along their journey, they came to the shore of the Red Sea, which they needed to cross. At the same time, Pharaoh had had a change of heart. He decided to send his army to capture them and to bring them back. And here they are in this moment that we're going to read in just a minute. They're trapped between the two, the Red Sea in front of them, the armies of the Egyptians coming up from behind them. And we're going to pick up the story right there as we read from Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 14, but it's summarized in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 29. And so let's read from Hebrews 29, 11, 29, and then jump to the Exodus 14 passage. It's on the screen behind me. If you're at home, we're so glad you're with us. It'll be on your screen as well. You can follow along a Bible in a Bible there if you'd like to uh, from those two places. Let's read. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now, that's the summary of this scene here in Exodus 14. Let's read it together as well. And so, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, "'Was it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, "'Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians, "'for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert.'" And Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance, the salvation of the Lord that he will bring to you today. For the Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I read from the NIV because I like it better than the ESV here. And so if you're following along in the ESV, there's some, a little few differences. Just be aware of that as we go along. I think the NIV gets at uh, gets at the essence of what we're being told here a, a little better than the ESV. So I know that's blasphemy in our circles, but I, nevertheless, uh, we're going to go from the NIV this morning. Now, look there again. It says that uh, the Egyptian, excuse me, that the Hebrews crossed the Red Sea is on dry land. Okay, that's Hebrews 11:29. In other words, what you know, what is the significance of that? Well, I think it's just as simple as this: that what what the writer's saying there is that it was miraculous. I mean, typically, you can't just cross the sea, unless it's Lake Hamilton, which is only, you know, a few feet deep most of the way. But nevertheless, you know, but here these people are, the walls of the water on both sides have come up, and they're crossing. But not only a crossing, you can imagine the muckiness, it would, but it was as dry land, because God was doing a miracle here. There was no other way. There was nothing that they could do in their own strength. There was nowhere for them to go. Here they are, hemmed in between the sea in front of them and the armies approaching behind them and the only the only way was for god to come and supernaturally intervene to rescue them that's the that's the place they were stuck in and what i want to say to you is that's true in the totality of the christian life that the day-to-day power that we need belongs to god and not to us that's second corinthians chapter four verse seven And so let me ask this question of you this morning, when you're facing a crisis, because remember, in every case, in every case study here, what happens to these people is there's some sort of crisis. And so if you are going to be a person of the faith of these people, then you should expect that your life is going to be full of crisis too. And when it is, when you're facing a crisis, what's your first impulse? You might plan. If you're anything like me, you might Excel spreadsheet your way out of the crisis. That's my favorite thing to do. You might blame, either blame yourself or begin to blame others. You might shut down. There's lots of ways that you could respond, but I wonder, do you ever strategically, on purpose, do nothing? Is it ever your first impulse when a crisis hits to just pray? Eugene Peterson defined prayer as strategic non-doing. You'll see that's the title of the sermon this morning. Here's what he said, and listen to this. We'll come back to this a few times throughout our time, but this is really significant. He says, what we don't do for God is often far more critical than what we, in fact, do. God is the beginning, the center, the end of the world's life, of existence itself. But we're often unaware of God's action except dimly and peripherally, especially when we're in full possession of our powers. When that's the case, it's hard not to imagine that we're at the beginning, the center and the end of the world, or at least at the part of the world in which we're placed. He says, at these moments, when we're so full of our own, you know, sense of importance and, and, you know, presence, he says, we need to quit what we're doing and sit down. That's what we need. And when we sit down, listen to this, the dust raised by our furious activity settles. The noise generated by our building operations goes quiet and we become aware of the real world, God's world and it's so much larger so much full of so much more full of energy and possibility than our ego-fueled actions so much clearer and saner than the plans that we had projected there are moments far more frequent than we might suppose when doing nothing is precisely the gospel thing to do but biblical non-doing is neither sloth nor stoicism it's a strategy and that's where the title of the sermon came from faith is strategic non-doing. We've been defining faith all throughout these months. Faith is strategic non-doing. That's our topic. Now, if you look at this text, you'll see, uh, and if you look at the outline that I've given you, you're going to see it's a little different this morning than usual. I just want to give you the doctrine of the text. I want to tell you really what the the theological spiritual lesson of the text is, and then I want to apply it in two different ways, okay? The doctrine. And then two applications. And so as we come to the text this morning, I know we don't normally do this, but I'm going to ask you, would you just uh, pray with me very quickly? Father, we are not here because we're good, but because we're yours. Thank you for this word. May your spirit come now and make these dry bones live. Forgive the preacher his sins, for they are many. We would see Jesus and him only. In his name we pray. Amen. And so the doctrine. Let's talk about the doctrine of this text. What's really the lesson for our lives? Okay, here. And here's how I'm going to put it to you. And you'll see it right there in your outline. And it's just this. You will not know that Jesus is all you need until he's all you have. You will not know that God is all you need until he is all you have. And therefore, what the text teaches is that God is actively working in your life, just like he was here. He's working in your life to bring you to the place where he is all you have in order to teach you the lesson that he is really all you need. God orchestrates our lives towards need, towards weakness, to teach, to teach us to daily depend upon him for everything. That's exactly how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to what he says. He says, we were afflicted and burdened beyond our strength. We, were, we received the sentence of death, he says. I mean, it was going really bad for them, really bad. And of course, he's on mission. He's on his missionary journey. He's serving the Lord. He says, Look, it, affliction and burden beyond our strength, we were, see, it was like we were dying. He says, but all this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so the person who's living by faith has learned to go to God, not for the things they need, but to go to him as the thing they need. Because all the other sources of strength and security have failed them, and he's all they have left. But the surprise of this story anyway, is that in all of this working God is behind it all. God is breaking our schemes of earthly joy to borrow a line from a John Newton hymn. He's thwarting our plans for finding happiness apart from Him and we see this in the Exodus 14 passage. Now let's come to the text and, and I, you know we're, we're, we're kind of we're entering the story in the middle of the story, right You really should probably go back and read all of Exodus 14 to understand it in its totality, but we just didn't have time to do that this morning. But what you would see there is you would see that by this time where we come to this scene, Israel was well out of Pharaoh's reach. It had been almost a month since they had been miraculously delivered and come out of Egypt. They had traveled almost 250 miles. They were making really good progress towards the promised land, away from Egypt, you know, out of the clutches of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had had given up. They were way out there in the wilderness. And then you come to verse 1 of chapter 14 and it says that God said to them, you know what, let's turn back. And he began to lead them in circles. And so instead of making progress straight towards the Promised Land, they start to wander around and circle around. And reports of their wandering made their way to Pharaoh, who, because of the reports, was emboldened to, in, to pursue them, which brings us to this scene. Here the people are, gathered at the shore of the Red Sea. They're trapped between the sea in front of them and the armies of Pharaoh advancing behind them. There's nowhere for them to go. And what we learn is that it was all God's doing that he set the whole thing up, that he was the one that they were following, that he led them in circles. To bait Pharaoh, we're told, and it even says there in verse 4 that God, in the process, hardened Pharaoh's heart yet again and actively moved upon him so that he would go out in pursuit of the people. So so the Lord is orchestrating this whole thing, and we're even told why. Why? He says in verse 4, I'm going to do this to get glory and to make myself known. That's God's intent. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm moving all of the chess pieces around because I have one goal. And that goal is to get glory for myself and to make myself known. And even at the end of the chapter, as all of this plays out and the people are finally delivered and the, the Egyptians are drowned in the Red Sea. It says that the people then, they saw the great power of the Lord. This is verse 31. They saw the great power of the Lord, and they feared the Lord, and they trusted him. And that was what God was after. Now, we've said that all of these stories of faith involve some sort of crisis, similar to this. And so the person finds themselves in a situation they cannot get themselves out of. But what they do when they find themselves there is they are enabled to turn to God in faith. And the lesson is expanded here. To say this, that when you're in a crisis, you need God to get you out, but you also have to recognize that he's the one that got you in the mess to begin with. I mean, if God is sovereign, which we believe, if all things are from him, which is what clearly we believe the Bible teaches, then we have to admit that the crisis, whatever it might be, is not an accident. It's a providence. It's from God. He orchestrates the circumstances that require him to intervene because he wants us to know him. He wants to become our glory. He wants to become the source of all of our joy and confidence and strength and hope so that we don't just go to him for the things we need, but that we go to him as the thing we need. And not just in crisis, but in all the other times too. Our hearts, John Calvin said, are idle factories. We're so prone to put our trust in other things, in our own strength, our credentials, our plans, our connections, our relationships, whatever it might be. And it's so profound that what we learn is God must periodically cause them all to fail us to teach us that he is all we need. And in such times, our first response is often not faith like we read here. In Hebrews chapter 11 but fear or unbelief and I know we've been hammering fear but it just keeps coming up and so we have to deal with it it's true of the Israelites look in verse 10 it says when Pharaoh drew near the people of Israel lifted their eyes and behold the Egyptians and they feared greatly but here's the thing it's funny in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 highlights their faith So in in Exodus chapter 14, verse 10, it says they're greatly, they're just, they're overwhelmed with fear. In Hebrews 11, it says, no, they had faith. And somebody pointed this out to me last week, how how this isn't the only time that Hebrews 11 is taking some liberties with the text, let's say that, okay, in the Old Testament. So in Hebrews 11, 27, it says that Moses left Egypt not being afraid of the king. But if you read the Exodus passage in Exodus 2, verse 15, it says that Moses left Egypt because he was afraid of the king. And so how do we resolve the tension between the stories in the Old Testament and the summaries in Hebrews 11? Well, I'm I'm not sure that we're supposed to, for one thing, but I do think that you could say that every by-faith, every by-faith case study in Hebrews 11 is a story and not a snapshot. It describes a process and not a single moment in time. And so here their first reaction was to be afraid. I mean, verse 10, they looked and they saw the Egyptians and it momentarily pushed God to the, to the periphery of their vision. You know, behold the Egyptians, there they were. And God moved to the periphery and they were afraid. But then as the, as the story goes on, God begins to speak and they begin to turn their attention back to him. And, and through Moses' leadership and so forth, he moved from the periphery back to the center. And as he did, they were able to regain their composure and move forward into the sea by faith. They were afraid at the beginning, but they didn't stay afraid, and that's how faith works. That's the point. It's not automatic. You have to put it to work by taking your eyes off of whatever's making you so afraid and making God's character and His promises the center of your attention. So when you're facing a crisis, you refuse to let your emotions get the best of you. You've got to go back to your theology and let your theology determine your emotions. And so to have faith like those in Hebrews 11 doesn't mean you're never afraid, but that you possess internal resources, even spiritual power, we could say, that can transform those moments of fear into moments of courage. But it's a process, it's a fight. And the text here is helpful in diagnosing where you are in the process, okay? So if really all of us are on this journey, and it's not just a one-time thing, if it's a, you know, in every crisis, it's this journey of we typically begin in unbelief and fear because it's just the natural impulse, and then we have to tamp that natural impulse down uh, in the fight of faith. How do you know kind of where you are in whatever crisis you might be going through right now? Well, there's some diagnostics of both fear and faith that I think are important here, and man, there's just so much we can't really Get to it all, so we'll have to move really quickly. But let's look at some of the diagnostics uh, about about fear. Let's talk about fear first, and I want you to see a number of things. The first is I would point out how how this text teaches us that we can displace our feelings about God onto others. Do you notice there? They're quite upset with Moses. And this isn't the only time this is the case, but here too, they're, they're really upset with Moses. They start to blame him, but the reality was this wasn't his idea. God was doing all of this. He's just following the Lord, and they're following him, but, but none of it was his idea. And really, the truth is, it's easier to be mad at your spouse or your parent or an enemy than it is to admit that you're mad at God for how your life is going. But there are real issues with the Lord, and we should be just aware of that. There are real issues with the Lord. I mean, and, and, and because they've allowed their circumstances to begin to determine their theology. I mean, look at the things they say, verse 11. They, they, they start to just complain. They, they issue all these complaints. Was it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? I mean, that's like when you're, that's your seven-year-old child sassing you, and you want to just reach across the table and, like, flick them in the ear or something, whatever you do. Whatever you're tempted to do. I want to, you know, that's Sass. I mean, it's, it's dripping with sarcasm and self-pity. I mean, they're resentful and bitter. They're cynical. What they say is, we told you. We told you. We told you this is how it was going to be. And what we learn is that they never really let themselves to believe. All the years and the generations of slavery left them with such a warped understanding of God's heart. And that's the third thing. They say, verse 12, it would have been better. Listen to this it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. God, we'd rather be back there with them as slaves than out here with you. Pharaoh is a better king than you are. We'd rather serve him. It's quite an indictment. And it shows, it shows that there's a real disconnect in their relationship with the Lord, that they never really gave their heart to him, and that's the last thing, that they considered God useful, but not beautiful. They were using him. They didn't love him. And so the moment it started to go bad, they were quick to complain and accuse him of all kinds of wrongdoing. Now, those are some of the check engine lights that show up when you're still operating in fear, not faith. But and you see all of them, and I would just give them to you and say, sit with those. You know, go, go back and really think and examine and, and be thoughtful about that. But you start to move towards faith more and more as these wrong ideas that you have about God get challenged and corrected. And in the text, this happens when Moses begins to speak in verses 13 and 14 when he says to them, fear not. He, he, ain't, he, called, he goes right at their fear. He says, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you, he says. And so Moses Moses says, God did not work the miracles in Egypt and carry you through the wilderness and provide for you. Just to let you die at the hands of Pharaoh now, don't you know he's infinitely good and infinitely great and he's mighty to save and his love for you will never fail? I mean, so Moses is coming and he's having to remind them, he's saying, he's reminding them of of their theology to help them view the crisis they're in the middle of through the lens of their theology. And by theology, I don't just mean doctrine, I don't mean, you know, knowing the answers to the catechism. When I use the word theology, I mean personal, intimate knowledge of God from experience. And that's always the first step, to to allow, to be viewing the crisis through the lens of what you know to be true of God. And the next step then is, is as that begins to happen, you begin to be a person who's able to trust his promises, that you can move forward relying on his power and love and not your own strengths or smarts. As Moses says, look there again, verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, for the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. That's a promise. Right And in the world stage of that day, it's, it's quite a promise because Egypt was the superpower of the day. And, and God's saying, I'm going to put an end to these people right here. I'm going to do something for you that you could never do for yourself. You have to trust me. And the move towards faith means that more and more your confidence and joy and peace and hope are all coming from God's promises and not your plans. Which means more and more you're able... To go through life being still. Do you see that? Verse 14 is the crux of the passage. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Strategic non-doing. A.W. Pink, about this passage, wrote this. He says, unbelief creates or magnifies difficulties. Let me say that again. Unbelief creates or magnifies difficulties and then sets us about removing them by our own actions, which in reality do but raise a dust around us which prevents our seeing God's salvation. It's a great little image there. He says, faith, on the contrary, raises the soul above the difficulty, straight to God himself, and enables us to stand still. When unbelief is driven from the scene, then God can enter, and in order to get a proper view of his actings, we must stand still. Every moment is a positive hindrance to our perception of Excuse me. every movement is a positive hindrance to our perception and enjoyment of divine interference on our behalf. So the natural response in a crisis, I mean, chemically, brain chemistry, like everything in your body, natural response is fight or flight. But faith is the supernatural ability when things start to fall apart around you to keep your calm, stay put, stay engaged emotionally, and wait, wait for however long it takes for, God to supernaturally intervene and work to save you. Let me say again, because it's a profound thought. God is providentially, if you belong to him, if you're one of his loved ones, he is providentially working to bring you to places where he is all you have to teach you that he is all you need. And you know it's starting to sink in? When you're able, even as the crisis is still unfolding and everything is chaotic around you, when you're able to be still, when you're able to be at peace, when you're able to be quiet internally and create quiet around you because, because even though the things are swirling, you are able to remain confident in God's love and his power to save. There's really an amazing transition that happens in this text. They started out fearing, God great, fearing greatly the Egyptians, verse 10. Complaining to God, because you know they were fearing, fearing the Egyptians and complaining to God, but by the end, it says that they feared the Lord and trusted Him, and they went forward into the sea. At the beginning, at the beginning, all they could see were the Egyptians, Verse 10, "Behold the Egyptians, there they are. And God was peripheral to their vision. but through these events, the Lord moved from the periphery to the center, and everything else moved to the periphery. They saw salvation. they saw His great power. And that's faith, It's process. Now, I want to apply it in a couple of ways, okay? Just for all of us in the room this morning, just a couple of ways to apply this as we think about what it means to just walk with God on a day-to-day basis. And the first thing I want to do is I want to say, I want to explain something, uh, I want, well, I want you to see uh, this first application to explain the way a person first comes to faith. I want to talk about that. This, this is really a text that teaches us what it means to actually come to faith, to become a Christian. If you're not a Christian, this is how you become a Christian, The Bible says that there is a record of sin in each of our lives that condemns us. And we have all fallen short of God's glory. By that, Paul means that we have not orbited our lives around him as we should, as he is deserving. Instead, we demand that he orbit himself around our selfish desires and dreams. And God is holy and just, and therefore he must punish sin and the just punishment for sin is death and hell. And so in front of us is the day of judgment when we will stand before God and give an account of every idle word, every deed of our lives. And behind us is the record of our sin and our selfishness that is threatening to destroy us. And what do we do? How can we be saved? Well, we listen to Moses' words. He tells us, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. And that takes us right to the gospel. The good news of Christianity, which is that God has come into the world himself to accomplish for us the work that we could never do all on our own. Jesus Christ, God himself, was born into all of the frailty and weakness and temptation that we also experience. But unlike us, he lived a life of perfect obedience to God. And at the end of his life, he died At God's command to pay the penalty for our sins, though he himself was innocent. And with his last breath, you know this, as he hung upon the cross, he said, it is finished. Because in his obedient life and in his sacrificial death, he has completed the work of salvation for all who are his. Jesus did everything and we do nothing. That's our gospel. He did everything and we do nothing because salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his work, not ours. No one is saved by doing. We're saved by seeing. That's it. Do you see this? Moses says, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. And so a lot of people are trying to save themselves by doing. And then when that doesn't work, doing more. And when that doesn't work, more and more and so on. But you, you, your doing cannot save you. The only way to be saved is to see what God has done for you in Jesus and to rest in that work. Salvation is by seeing, not by doing. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I've really come to admire and adore he, would, he had a, a diagnostic, a test that he would do with people as he's talking to them about the state of their soul. He would say, he would be inquiring about their faith and he would say, are you a Christian? And inevitably people would say, well, you know, and you got to know Martin Lloyd-Jones' personality for this to really make sense. But he would say, you know, are you, are you a Christian? And, and people would say, well, you know, I'm trying really hard. And he would say, well, then you're not a Christian. You don't know the first thing about Christianity. If that's your answer to, are you a Christian, is, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing my best. Well, you don't know the first thing about Christianity. Because Christianity doesn't have anything to do with your doing. In fact, to become a Christian, all you need is nothing. The only fitness you need is to feel, the only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. All you need is nothing, but nobody has nothing. We all have something, right? We all have some secret hope of recommending ourselves to God by our doing, some kind of righteousness that we claim for ourselves, which is why John Gerstner used to say that the main thing between you and God is not your sins, it's your damnable good deeds. And the truth is, is you're not a Christian until you've stopped trying to be and instead turned to Jesus instead, strategic non-doing. That's the way to faith. That's the way to become a Christian. But I want you also to see that, that this is, you know, if it's how you become a Christian, it's actually how you do all of life with God. Verse 14, you need only to be still because Jesus' work to save you is also the yes and amen of all of the rest of God's promises. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has already secured every one of God's promises for you. And so life is not up to you. Isn't that great? Life's not, it's not resting on your shoulders. Can you just take a breath underneath that for a minute? You can't make a mistake that God can't redeem. It's counterintuitive. I mean, there is striving. Don't get the idea that there's not striving, but it's striving to be still. That's Hebrews chapter four, verse 11. It's working hard just to stay out of the way of whatever God is doing, which is, by the way, my number one parenting strategy. If you want to, I mean, you know, I have lots of them, but my number one, and I wrote them down, I have like 14 or 15 things that I, and that tells you more than you need to know about me, but, you know, so it's already more complicated than it needs to be. But the number one thing is, you know, just to stay out of the way of God's working in my kids. He's a better parent than I am. All the love that I have for them and all the hopes that I have, he has a greater love and greater hopes for my kids than I do. And so all I've got to do is just stay out of the way. Now, that doesn't mean I'm hands off. I mean, ask my kids. They'll tell you that is not the case, right? And they probably wish I would be more. But, but it's the hardest thing in the world, isn't it? Isn't it? The hardest thing in the world is to pray instead of lecture your kids when they do something wrong. doesn't mean they don't need a lecture. Sometimes they need a lecture. But more than they there you go. <laughs> but more than they need a lecture, they need you to pray. You know, prayer without a lecture can get you through. A lecture without prayer never will. And I'm sorry, you know, I don't mean like parenting. That's just the thing I feel like I have three, well really four teenagers in the house, so it feels like that's all I'm doing these days, okay? Uh, And so, but it's not just parenting, it's how a sermon gets written. And I know you don't care anything about that, but I mean, it's just how all of life happens. All of life happens as we learn this, this habit of striving to be still. It's what the Bible refers to as waiting on the Lord. I mean, listen to this verse we read this past, this past week, or maybe the week before. It says, from of old, this is Isaiah 64, from of old, no one has heard, no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. Did you know? It's kind of funny that the overwhelming major I mean overwhelming majority of people and this is like people who are in church and people who aren't but like I don't even know the percentage but it's like way up there 70 80% overwhelming majority of people believe that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. It's a biblical principle. It's not. Isaiah 64 4 says That God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps the helpless. He works for those who wait on him. Those who know their work will never get it done. I mean, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And who are the poor in spirit? They're the people who, through life circumstances, they've learned the lesson. They know that God is all they need because he is all they have. Jesus says they're blessed. He says they're the happy ones because they've learned how life really works. And they know, they know it's okay to feel overwhelmed. It's okay to feel like you don't have what it takes. You're supposed to feel that way. But when life brings you to that place, do you despair? Or do you become determined to do more and do it better? Do you put your thumb on your kids and make it happen? or on your life, or on your work? Or are you able to keep your resolve and keep going because he's your glory, because you've seen his great power, because you know him personally, and everything else is peripheral, right? The verse we read, be still and know that I'm God. That's a life strategy. Be still and know that I'm God. What crisis are you going through? Be still and know that he is the Lord. Now, I quoted A.W. Pink earlier, but I didn't mention it, and I want to now. And in light of Psalm 4610, he said, you get still when you know God. You know, be still and know that I'm the Lord. You get still when you know him, but you also have to get still in order to know him. He uses a vivid analogy. He says all of our worrying, all of our scurrying around, all it does is kick up a dust cloud that actually obscures reality to us. Because it, just, it just kind of encases us in our little world of our own doing. And it's not until we stop and get still that the dust can begin to settle. settle and we can actually see what's really happening. We can actually see beyond our little world to the real world, to, what, to all that God is doing. And so, be still and know that I am God could be translated, be still to know that I am God. So be still, not just because you believe, but be still in order to believe. Now listen again to Eugene Peterson. I want to just quote him again. He says... When we sit down, he used the same analogy. I wonder if, if, if he wasn't reading AW Paint, too. He said, When we sit down, the dust raised by our furious activity settles. The noise generated by our building operations goes quiet, and we become aware of the real world, God's world. And it's so much larger, so much more full of energy and possibility than our ego fueled actions, so much clearer and saner than the plans that we had projected. And so he concludes there are moments far more frequent than we might suppose when doing nothing is precisely the gospel thing to do. Strategic non doing. Heed the advice of the hymn writer, calling us to faith maybe for the first time or to renewing our faith when he says, Weary working, burden one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing, all was done long, long ago, till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. So cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Would you pray with me? So Heavenly Father, truly there is no God like you who works for those who wait for you, And we confess that it's hard to believe that what you want most from us is not our effort but our need because we wrongly assume that you are as stern and exacting with us as we are with ourselves and with others. And so we confess that we have been wrong about you and we turn from our tepid thoughts about your heart for us and we also turn from our striving. We take the advice of the hymn writer here to lay our deadly doing down. I mean, why are we so busy in the first place? I think it must be because we like to imagine that the world is on our shoulders. It helps us feel more in control of things, but it's a delusion. And so quiet our hearts, we pray in these moments. Make us lie down in green pastures. Settle the dust that has been kicked up by all our doing and give us eyes of faith to see your salvation. Jesus, you have completed all of the work necessary. We confess that. And for some of us, it might be the first time we have to say, you know, I've been trying to do this all on my own, but Jesus, you're the one. You're the one who's completed all the work that is necessary not only to save, but also to secure the Father's yes to every promise. So turn our gaze towards you in this moment. Holy Spirit, help us to enter into this moment and then to go from here into this next week, waiting, praying, worshiping, which is why we end the service with a song as a response. What is the response to the reality that all the doing that must be done has been done by you to seeing the salvation of the Lord. It's what what in, in Exodus 14 goes into Exodus 15, and in Exodus 15 the people sing because that's all because that's all you can do. There's nothing left to do. All they can do is sing in response. And so help us to enter into this moment as we sing now. But before we do, just in the quiet of this moment, settle your heart. Just sit in the moment. Turn away from all of your own striving, from the exhaustion of this past week that comes from the inevitable feeling like the world is just on your shoulders. And ask Him to take you by the hand and to lead you to still waters and to quiet your soul and make you lie down in green pastures. It's the movement of faith. And so, Father, now turn our faith into worship, because you're worthy of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so, if you're having to wait upon the Lord, I just want to acknowledge, I know how hard that is. It just takes an incredible amount of energy and stick to And so, that's why this benediction is so important, because here, again, is the promise that um, the way you find the strength to continue to wait is through the promise that he works for those who wait so if you're waiting, that means he's working. You just don't see the outcome. You don't see the end result of all of that yet. And so continue to wait. He will continue to work. That's what these words mean. So go with these words on your heart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. Tchau. E